Kiara Koto. I'm Philip Italian. Welcome to Insight. This week, water supplies. Flushing the toilet, washing the dishes, showering, watering the garden. Every time we use water, we're relying on water infrastructure. The pipes under our cities, towns and homes deliver not just drinking water, they also take away our waste. But local councils, especially those outside the main centres, say they can't afford the upkeep of the pipes they own and struggle to pay for necessary upgrades. As the government contemplates how to improve drinking, waste and stormwater, communities are worried that control of their water could be taken from them. Laura Dooney has been on the road to gauge the scale of the challenge facing those dealing with water supplies. I'm heading over the Rumataka Hill Road from Wellington to Wairarapa. The region's 44,000 residents are split into three different councils the smallest being Carterton District Council, home to 9,000 people. They are the classic example of not many people needing to pay for big-ticket infrastructure, and it can't be ignored. Unsafe drinking water kills, and badly treated wastewater can poison streams, lakes and people. The gastroenteritis outbreak in Havelock North was linked to three deaths, and many residents could still be feeling the effects on their health. And in many parts of the country, heavy rain often causes stormwater to mix with wastewater, pushing raw sewage onto our beaches. In Carterton, their drinking water comes from the Kaipatangata stream and the Tararua ranges. The council's planning and regulatory manager Dave Gittins oh, really? took me into the hills to see where the stream is dammed. Nestled in amongst the hills and surrounded by tall trees and bush, on a grey rainy day the dam flows over a small weir on its way to be treated. Last year a storm caused the stream to flood, which took out the banks of the dam, washed out parts of the road and dumped silt and trees over the lower stream. So this is our uh, water intake area, so I'm from the Kapitangata. So this is our main in, uh, water for the district's potable water, or drinking water. Mr Gittings and, uh, says having one of the country's smallest ratepayer bases means it also has one of the smallest budgets to try to pay for all the various water pipes and supplies. The council's just signed off on how it will spend money over the next 10 years, a big chunk will go on upgrading the nearby wastewater treatment plant. Now that's about an $8 million upgrade. In the, in the scheme of wastewater treatment plants, that's not a large increase. Uh, but for, for, for us, if you start to put it in terms of our operating annual operating costs, that's about three-quarters of our annual operating costs in, in one project. And under our 10-year plan, that was pretty much all we could afford to do. So that we're, we're hamstrung by being able to do anything else for the community other than that wastewater treatment upgrade. This is with changing environmental standards, councils are expected to do more and spend more to reduce the amount of wastewater going into rivers and the sea, putting treated wastewater onto land instead. It's something all three councils in the region are talking about. That includes Masterton, just a 15-minute drive north, where I visited the drinking water treatment plant. Set off a rural road, the plant's plain facade gives nothing away. But behind it, there are three huge water storage ponds and a complicated system of concrete tanks and filters that treat the water before it's piped to another large, squat square building where it's further treated with chlorine 
and sent to Masterton Taps. The plant supplies water to most of the district's 25,000 people. The manager of assets and operations, David Hopman, says the so-called three waters, drinking, waste and stormwater, do use up a lot of the council's money. But Masterton's lucky in that its drinking water infrastructure is relatively affordable. Still, it spent $46 million upgrading the town's wastewater treatment plant, which was finished in 2015. The town is getting water metres next year and has budgeted $5.6 million to make larger storage dams in a few years. And Mr Hopman says the town has set aside millions to fix up its main trunk line pipe, which is 100 years old. It's the main pipe connecting the water treatment plant to the town. That's quite an old pipe, but it's actually done extremely well. We've planned to do a staged um, renewal of that over the next decade of replacing sections of that pipe. And, and again, that comes at a big cost. That's a $6 million project, which is it's quite substantial for the size of the town of Marsden. But again, that's planned in our long-term plan and our asset management plans to try to deal with that. Mr Hopman says much like in Carterton, a consequence of big spending on water and its pipes means projects like upgrading the town centre or making local roads better have to be balanced against the cost of water. Like councils across the country, Masterton is looking at its options while the government carries out a review into how water structures paid for, managed and regulated to make sure standards are met. What's the best way to manage networks? It's always challenging in the sense that the, the communities own the assets, they're their assets and they've invested in them. There's strong feelings of who should maintain those assets but then balanced against that is the affordability question of the investment that is needed is ongoing and, and can it be affordable for all communities. South Wairarapa District Council rounds out the three with its population of 10,000. From his office in the wine-growing town of Martinborough, the Group Manager of Infrastructure and Services, Mark Allingham, explains how his council has been very forward-thinking in its water planning. That doesn't mean it doesn't have challenges. Martinborough is in right here, has a high manganese content in the water, um, which is nothing wrong with it, it's actually quite good for you. But if you mix manganese and chlorine together, the water goes a black colour which is completely potable and able to be drunken, except well, not aesthetically pleasing. So um, we use ultraviolet sterilisation for the water here. Um, we have done, and that's passed us previously. However, going forward, we may need to have a look at how we can remove the manganese if we have to chlorinate, and that's going to cost quite a lot of money for a reasonably small town. And I think from memory there's about 1,200-odd people on the water supply here. Meeting the new water standards across the board is going to be difficult, I think, for all councils. On top of renewal, maintenance and keeping up with water quality standards for both drinking water and swimmability, councils are grappling with changing expectations. Ben Fountain is the Stormwater Chief Advisor at Wellington Water, an organisation that is an example of how water can be managed in a collective way, it runs the water for five councils in the region. Certainly water quality is, is key. People are no longer 
just interested in just the flood protection component of what stormwater can do. They also are interested in a stream that their kids can play in and that they can interact with, and also beaches that you are safe to swim in. So the expectation is is a changing shift in values, I think, in the community, a recognition that we want to live, uh, have a livable city, and that requires us to rethink how we interact with the environment around us and that there's an increasing value that people place on the natural environment, even in, within cities. The government's review of the three waters comes in the wake of the Campylobacter outbreak in Havelock North and recommendations stemming from an inquiry into the contamination of the Hawke's Bay town's water. They included establishing a dedicated drinking water regulator. The local government minister, Nanaya Mahuta, is leading the reform. She has just got back from a trip to the United Kingdom and Ireland, where she looked at how those countries have tackled the problems also facing New Zealand when it comes to water and its infrastructure. They tackled reform much earlier than us, and it was driven by standards imposed by the EU. Uh, So, in a sense, they went through reform driven by higher drinking water standards, and then they responded quite differently. In England, they've got a privatised system of water service delivery. In Scotland and Ireland, a public uh, service delivery. Ms Mahuta says no one knows exactly how much it will cost to make sure our water infrastructure's where it needs to be. We don't have a comprehensive uh, set of data and information we can rely on. However, in the drinking water space, the best uh, estimates that we have is that it'll be around about, at the upper end for drinking water, to be compliant, around about $547 million in that, in that vicinity. However, the more concerning costs, and we've uh, DIA has commissioned a, uh, a further report from Becca to get some sense of what the costs are, will be in the area of wastewater. And this, this follows, again, the international experience. While you can pretty much will get a good sense of what's happening in the drinking water space, wastewater is a whole other issue and it, it exceeds the drinking water costs uh, that were projected in their countries and the same applies here. She's conscious of the many pressures facing local councils when it comes to water infrastructure, such as growth, tourism, climate change and declining ratepayer bases as people head for the brighter lights of the city. Thank you, how are you? I should have bought my skis up by the look of it. High on the slopes of Mount Ruapehu, on a glorious sunny day, as skiers and snowboarders of all ages stomp their way onto crisp white snow, I'm at Ruapehu District Council's Mayor Don Cameron and its Chief Executive Clive Manley. Tourism is booming in the district, which has a population of 12,000 people spread across towns like Ohakuni, Raitahi and Taumaranui. It's good for the region, but is putting pressure on local infrastructure. Simply just the pure numbers of people that are arriving. So uh, you know, three years ago we thought that uh, 750,000 was um, a big hairy goal for us. Uh, we're now reaching 1 million and within... We think three years to five years will be over one and a half million. Um, and somebody, because of the big project that's happening with the gondola at um, Tokopopa, and also with the plans going forward for Turoa as well, um, undoubtedly the winter, um, you know, winter numbers will climb because of the amount of snow that can be made nowadays, but the summer numbers are well exceeding winter and have done for about four years now.
Mr Cameron says the council's able to pay for what it needs for now. Well, at this stage, we've uh, put out our long-term plan for the next 10 years, and without a doubt, if we don't get any government subsidy, um, yes, we'll be right at the extent of our borrowing capacity over 10 years. Um, But as we now know, the government is looking to major change for the three waters. Um, and that will, without a doubt, particularly for rural, small rural councils, relieve a huge amount of pressure on that. But it, the, we've yet to see the final plans, um, and we're assuming at this stage that, um, you know, we're telling our ratepayers this is what's going to happen for the next 10 years. Um, and uh, to be quite honest, we, when we put it out, uh, we got very little reaction to it, other than, um, yes, hoping the government does step forward. And we've Pretty certain that that will happen. We're not alone. We're probably better placed than most of the South Island councils, uh, in that we've we've planned for this for some time, um, and we know that some of the South Island councils, in particular, are really struggling to catch up with the business numbers they're already getting. So uh, and the infrastructure is really creaky. We're not at that stage. He wants funding to come another way, maybe a tourism tax, or even a local bed tax. The district released its long-term plan this year and has made a change in the way it rates for water. The council's chief executive, Clive Manley, explains how it was necessary to spread the load. Up till this year, each scheme stood on its own. So if they upgraded it, they all, just those people connected to that scheme, paid for it. Those who used the water from that scheme paid for it. What that meant was when you do a very small scheme, then it costs per person a lot more than a big scheme. So places like Auckland and Wellington have very effective water schemes per population, even though they're huge dollars to build. When you divide that by the number of people connected, it's actually a lower cost than a small scheme that has to have a lot of one-off costs just to to run the thing. So what we did this year through the long-term plan uh, consultation process was to introduce a district-wide charge. So that meant that if you're a small scheme or a larger one in like uh, Tamaranui or Aokuni, you all pay the same cost. So that meant that it smoothed out those big schemes that could be over $1,000 a year uh, now have come down to something more manageable for them. Mr Manley says it's that type of approach the government's considering, taking that idea even further and bringing smaller places together with bigger places and putting a flat charge across them all. That would, in effect, see bigger towns subsidise water schemes in smaller towns. Down the mountain, in Oahakuni, I met market farmer David Eads in a local cafe. He lives just out of Oahakuni and says he has no problems with the new district-wide payment system. It's pretty good. It really is. Um, yeah, it's fair. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't complain about it. Do you know of anyone did? Oh, I'm sure there's people will complain. There's there's a group of people that think there should be a collective water supply for Oakuni and Radahi, but cost-wise, that's way up. It, it doesn't make sense. And he says locals like having the tourists come to town, despite the extra pressure they put on services. I think early in the piece there was a little bit of... Um, 
dissatisfaction with it, but over the years I've noticed with people particularly that I've employed, they actually quite look forward to the tourists coming in because look look at this little town, look at what we've got in way of restaurants and this type of thing that we would never have. A small country town of Oakuni wouldn't have it. We're a lucky town in that we've got farming, market gardening and forestry as an all year round base and then we have the cream on the top which is the tourism. Around the corner at a car dealership I met Dave Scott. He's part of a group dedicated to livening up the town and making it more appealing to visitors but he's not keen on the new district-wide funding scheme. We voted against because we didn't believe that we should have to pay for the next town's problems. We have to pay for our own, and that includes, you know, down to Pipariki, Rārahi, Moira and Arakuni. We're quite happy to fund our own, but now, anyhow, the powers to be voted to be joint. I'm a bit apprehensive about that because if a population in one area drops again, and there's some forecasts out that some of the northern areas will drop, who's going to pay? And it's going to be back on, on the ones left. And uh, we, we, can't, we can't seem to stop this um, reduction in population in rural towns. Mr Scott says apart from tourism, the primary industries, while still sustainable, aren't bringing growth into Ohakuni. But we still have to fund these infrastructures, which are massive because of the influx of absentee owners. And it's very, very difficult. And we also haven't got a high economic um, families here, we, you know, earning lots of money. Uh, probably about 40-odd percent are, are low. They're not in the real retail market. So we've got to look at that. They are needed and, and, and have to look after them, but it's a battle. Because they can't, you know, they can't afford to pay high rents or buy homes to fund the rates to expand on. The District Council's Chief Executive, Clive Manley, says examples of two different models of how water could be delivered are in Auckland and Wellington. Government is looking at aggregating all the, whether it's councils or small schemes together, and at the moment there are two main models in New Zealand. One is the water care model, which is in Auckland, where they own the assets, they charge for the water and sewage themselves, and they improve it. In Wellington, the communities retain the ownership of the assets, and they still set what the community pays for them, but they're managed by a separate body. And I think with this review, we we don't have to join everything together totally. You can still manage your infrastructure with a bigger unit, but still keep that local uh, control and decision-making on how it's, who owns it and how it's funded. The minister, Nanaya Mahuta, says she'd like other councils to consider if they could come together in similar models. Ms Mahuta says the way things are means the debt burden is pushed onto the next generation and there needs to be an entire system shift to smooth out the inequality between small and large councils. That move could see the water function taken off local councils. The other thing too is that there's another part of the conversation. And again in the anxiety space councils are saying, look if water gets taken off us, um, what else is there for us to do? So that's a legitimate concern uh, of which we're again having a, an in tandem conversation with councils. Mm-hmm. 
But when I think about why many people put their hand up to be elected and go to council, it's not because of the pipes under the ground, quite frankly. It's because of public amenities, the quality of life you might expect in your town or your community. It's the glue to what makes communities tick, having a library having a rec place, having places where your young people can express themselves and things like that. More and more, people who put their hand up to to represent in councils are wanting to be a part of that place-making aspiration, but also economic development as well. Back in Masterton, the Mayor Lynn Patterson agrees there's still a lot to be worked out. At the end of the day, it's different to rail and electricity. They were crown assets. These are community assets owned by our... Our ratepayers, we own them on behalf of our ratepayers. So our ratepayers have invested a lot of money into that infrastructure. So what's the best way going forward? And we won't know that until we all sit around and continue the conversations that we're having. You know, how long can things tick along the way that they are at the moment? I think the government are looking quite seriously at the independent regulator and I think as soon as that person or people are in place, the better and then legislation may follow that to give that independent regulator the tools to ensure compliance and to ensure that councils who are not complying that there is enforcement to ensure they do comply because we're talking about water safety. Um, So I think that could happen fairly quickly and that's what I would like to see happen, that be put in place first and then let's stop, take a breath and look at the wider issue about the structure. Ms Patterson says it's important to remember not one size fits all and that whatever the government comes up with needs to benefit local communities. On Mount Ruapehu, the district's Mayor Don Cameron says everyone needs to be included. In this area we've got uh, two tree settlements which are based on the whole catchment area. So we've got Te Awatupu, the Whanganui River and then the Whangaihu across the mountain here. That is a treaty settlement with uh, Ngāti Rangi, which is going to involve all communities and everyone looking after those water sources. So there's a completely different view now how we look at things. It's not just worrying about a catchment and the water going down, it's how we can retain that water so it's a living, breathing thing and looking after biodiversity, but also looking after the water source so that we can draw water from those areas forever and a day. And that's not guaranteed. Uh, Climate change is already making us look around for other water sources. Local government New Zealand's President Dave Cull has a pretty strong stance on whether local councils would be happy to have water taken off them. No, no. Uh, It would be a complete overreaction to the Havelock North uh, event. Local government New Zealand is really concerned that some entities that might benefit from the type of intervention uh, that's driving this agenda on the most flimsy of evidence, you know, follow the money on this. See who might benefit from an aggregated regime. And those agendas are being pushed, but they're being pushed, as I say, on flimsy evidence and prematurely. And uh, we're pretty confident that the government will see through those agendas. He doesn't think ratepayers would support the move either. I know that in many council areas, there's grave concern, and there has been for years, about the potential for privatisation. And the experience in other areas, telecommunications, electricity, etc., is when you corporatise, 
you make it much easier to privatise. And we know that our communities would be very concerned about privatisation of their water supply. I think concerned would be a euphemism. But another option being considered is to keep assets in council and ratepayers' hands but have a council-controlled organisation looking after them, like Wellington Water. The model in Auckland is similar, but there the organisation looking after the water, WaterCare, owns all the assets. Wellington Water was created in 2013 and combines Upper Hutt, Hutt City, Wellington, Porirua and the Regional Council in delivering water. The committee that oversees the organisation is headed by Chairman David Bassett, who's also the Deputy Mayor of Lower Hutt. One of the things that we've done is that we have aimed to have a centre of excellence for the management of uh, the three waters. And as a result of that, we are seeing the region developing policies and procedures for the management of water being done on a regional basis rather than on an individual local authority basis. And the consequences uh, that have come from that has been that we Getting consistency through, for example, things such as on the procurement area, we're having similar sort of pipes, manhole covers, all those sort of things. There is a consistency coming through, which obviously produces savings. One of the other advantages that we have is that rather than uh, a person going to a, a local authority and having perhaps limited experience and exposure to water, with the Wellington Water which is covering all the three waters, we're able to attract and retain very, very competent staff. So we've seen a lift in those expertise because it's actually seen as a career, a career in water management. He says the organisation's feedback on the review will be around the shared services success Wellington Water has had. Mr Bassett has been talking to mayors about moving it out across the lower North Island but says it's too soon to say if that will happen. I've had discussions with um, a number of mayors uh, within the area, but it takes time. Uh, they have to understand it, and uh, I think uh, if in the event that we did have uh, a good number of other local authorities coming into it, it would have to be restructured to obviously to meet everybody's needs. But we're not pushing. We're, we're offering to have discussions with people and we'll just see what unfolds. But I think a lot of people will now wait and actually see what the government actually has to to say, and then I think we'll move from that point. Back in the hills of Carterton, Dave Gitting says he can see the benefit of shared services, but taking away ownership of the infrastructure means taking away council assets. The assets themselves underground, they cost a lot of money and they, they are worth a lot of money to those councils. And so they go to a borrowing ability and a, a debt-to-asset borrowing ability. If you take those assets away, then how does the council function in terms of being able to borrow, be able to provide any other major facilities like a, like a, a swimming pool or something for its community? Uh, it would need to borrow that money, but it can only borrow it against the assets that it holds. And so that may provide an issue for for any future borrowing. The discussions continue as councils attempt to find workable solutions for ratepayers. But what might be imposed from central government is still unclear, although some indication is likely to be revealed soon, as the Minister Nanaia Mahuta is expected to report back to Cabinet with the results of the Three Waters Review in October. 
That programme was written and presented by Laura Dooney. If you'd like to discover some other great listening from Insight, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz forward slash Insight, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week we hear from a Dutch woman in her 20s who chose euthanasia because of severe mental illness, an option allowed under Dutch law. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's all from Insight for today. Great to have you with us and join us again next week.